Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. So from smart meters to smart homes, smart cities and smart grids, this episode will focus on unpacking the smart side of our net zero energy journey. We will explore why data and digitalization has become such a hot topic, and how being smart about how we use data and how we design the digital infrastructure that underpins this is critical for delivering a better energy system. We'll also consider some of the possible issues and challenges facing the industry. And we'll talk about what this actually means for households and communities, the sorts of data that they might be generating or using, and the benefits it could bring to them, and whether or not they should be worrying about who might be able to access their data, and what they can do to get involved. So today, we'll hear from two people who are at the forefront of data in the energy sector. First is Stephen MacArthur who is Professor of Intelligent Energy Systems at the University of Strathclyde and Head of the Energy Rev Research Consortium that Becky and I work with. We'll also be joined by Gavin Starks, CEO of Icebreaker One, a company working to unlock the value of data and use it to help deliver net zero. As always, we want to hear from you. Please tell us what you think of the podcast, leave reviews, and also ask questions or suggest any topics for future episodes. As always, you can tweet us. Um, actually, now we're at a new handle, which is at local zero pod. Okay, so introducing the award-winning Fraser Stewart. Fraser, how are you after uh, what can only have been a fantastic and rather exciting night for you? It was an exciting night. Thanks very much, Matt. For for listeners that, that don't know, that didn't see uh, my news on Twitter, I won the Scottish Renewables Award for Young Green Professional Working in Academia. So the award for a young person having impact in research in academia. Well done. Yeah, Congratulations, Fraser. That is quite the gong. Great news. Thank you very much. And I'd well insist on being called the award-winning Fraser Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm really hoping Dave can put in some kind of party popper in the background here or fanfare because it, it is worthy of that. (laughs) <laughs> and so Fraser, do you have um do you have like a, a big statue to show us or a big rosette or something? I haven't built a statue of him yet. What? 
No, no, not yet. I, I've heard my name's in the running for the new university building, the, the one that's been built on the hill. Um, I do have various other awards here that I can hold up. Stand aside, Alex Ferguson, the new man's uh, in town. Yeah. <laughs> you have other awards. Oh, yeah. I, I win so many, I just forget to tell you about them. <laughs> I know. This one um, is from Scottish Edge, which I also won this week. For the benefit of the listeners, he is actually reaching for and I'm holding up awards. Yeah, so. No, this is this is, this is is well done, Fraser. And of course, you know, Local Zero was was mentioned yeah yeah they were they were um very very impressed with how far local zero has come with the guests that we've had on with the the work that not not just me but that us as a team at local zero are doing so i do think that it's partly a a shared thing for for us as well and it's good to know that that's being but they they also mentioned some of the work you've done with glasgow community energy and of course it's probably a, a good time just to say that glasgow are Plug, plug, plug. Yeah, well, uh, are looking to raise some community shares, right, for uh, some solar PV on, on a couple of uh, rooftops in Glasgow. Yes, we've got the, the we, well, we've, we've already done the installations with uh, CARES and with Scottish Government various funding pots. Uh, the installations are up at Glendale Primary in Pollock Shields and Ashton Primary up in Easterhouse, one of the most deprived communities in, in Scotland. And it's generating... We expect it to generate at the end of this year about 5,000 in community benefit per location. So our share offer is live just now. Um, you search for Energy Glasgow on Twitter or in Google and you'll find it. We're trying to raise £30,000 in shares to bring more members on board to pay off one or two of our costs and to build the project going forward. So yes, plug, plug, plug. And, and let's just be clear, you don't need to be, we don't need to be based in Glasgow to contribute. No, you don't. You don't. If you live in Either of the postcodes right next to the schools, you'll get priority if we exceed the share offer, but you can absolutely pitch in from anywhere. And and if you're interested in community energy, do check it out. Also check out the earlier episode that we've covered off two or three episodes ago on community energy. So Fraser, this is very much local zero and this is putting uh, you know these ideas into practice. This is it. This is everything that we're about, the ethos of the pods in action in real time. So yeah, get involved. Please, please, please get involved. Fantastic. So Becky, tell us a little bit more about the episode today. We're... We're on smart energy, which I know is very close to your heart at the moment. Yeah, well, I think smart energy is often the the thing that underpins a lot of the ambitions that we're trying to achieve with local energy, but it's the bit that we don't talk about as much. And I think, you know, for most people, probably ourselves included, we don't really know all that much about what we mean by the smart bit. I mean, do you guys have smart meters in your home? I, I found out recently I've got a smart meter in my home. <laughs> how about you? Matt's looking puzzled. I, I, I do. I just don't know how smart it is. It, it tells me what I'm consuming at any given time. So that really kind of triggers the kind of general dad in me of like, who's turned the, you know, the light on? <laughs> Is that a motion heater still on? Um, so I just could patrol around the house turning stuff off. But beyond that, it doesn't do a great deal for me. And it also doesn't cover gas. Uh, I've asked many, many times. So it's just power. No time of use tariff. It feels pretty dumb to me at the moment uh, rather than smart. Well, you probably could have a time of use tariff. So I've just changed my supplier and signed up for a time of use tariff. So uh, probably, you know, listeners of the pod will probably have heard me talk about my very old, uh, slightly rundown Vauxhall Corsa that I've been driving. We've just had an upgrade and now I've got an EV, which is super exciting. It is like driving a rocket ship. I can't quite figure it out and and how to use it properly. Um, But... I've been able to switch tariffs. And now because I have a smart meter, I have one of these tariffs where I get cheaper energy at certain times of day. And time of use. Yeah. And my car can, um, you can set it to charge when the electricity is cheaper. So these are like little examples of how 
the smart, the the data that that we're starting to collect and the new kind of ways in which we can use that data to control our energy can start to deliver benefits. So now we're setting um, we're setting the laundry to take advantage of that tariff. We're setting the, <laughs> the washing machine to take advantage. So it's a hive of activity at 2.30 a.m. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, looking at the electric vehicles, I suspect consumers' uh, ears will uh, prick up once. People understand that these are essentially roving batteries. And what I mean by that is once it moors up at the house, this isn't just something you you charge up and zoom off in. It can actually be something that can release in, in good time. It can be something that can release power back into your house or into the grid at times when is is most needed. So these electric vehicles can perform a, a wider storage function as part of a smart grid and a, and a smart home. Well, I mean, I think that's the hypothesis. Whether that is actually something that plays out in reality, I'm not sure. And, and I don't know that there's consensus there yet, right? So to, you know, the, the batteries in our cars are not the, the easiest battery. You know, if you've got a big, static battery on the side of your house, that's not something where you're trying to minimize the weight to take it around in the car. And and I think that there are a whole lot of factors as to whether cars will be able to perform that function. So mine doesn't do that right now. I don't have the option of doing that right now. But I certainly know that, um, you know, Friends of mine who've got solar on their roof and a, a, a static battery can start to not only take advantage of the innovative time of use tariffs, but can also use the battery to suck in power from the grid when it's cheap and charge up. And then when power from the grid is more expensive, they can use that battery to then power their home. So they're starting to use all this extra information to not only to reduce their bills, because it probably has a positive impact on their bills, but also to maximise the use of local renewables. Yeah. And I think once consumers start to understand this is what a smart grid can do, a smart home, that it can not just save them cash, but that it can actually, it can create a whole realm of possibility, which wasn't initially open to them. Who, who would think of their their car as, you know, as something which... They can. I mean, I was, I was having this uh, same discussion with my wife because I'm looking to hire an electric vehicle today, actually, for the first time. And we were, you know, talking about all the hassle that I've gone into about looking about where to charge and the different networks I've got to subscribe to. And she said, "Oh, it sounds like a lot of hassle." So, well, on the face of it, it is. But when I pick it up, it's fully charged because where it sat, you know, is charging the the, the vehicle itself. So, yeah, it's t- just to put that analogy back into the home. You can drive your car. You more, you know, you pulled up. It was almost empty. You drive off and it's full, and your house has potentially drawn that that power down at, at the cheapest time. Very exciting, and I'm very jealous of your car, by the way, Ben. Oh, it is, it is amazing. <laughs> I still can't quite get used to it. Um, but no. but I think beyond that, and like, let's just think about what we were talking about a few moments ago, where Fraser was um, talking about the share offer and the idea of, you know, it's not just about the energy that we have in our home and thinking about benefits at the household level but a lot of this happens at the community level so it might be that there are um, you know shared community level assets and perhaps it's not about just minimizing the bills for those people who have these you know these technologies in their homes but actually how can we start to use our data this data and this new sort of digitalization advanced forms of control on our energy systems to deliver benefits back into the community. What could that look like? So a good example of that. So I do some work with some of the distribution network operators uh, like Scottish Power Energy Networks and others. A big part of the smart is that they can better balance supply and demand. And with that, they're not necessarily having to reinforce the grid. 
to, you know, as we electrify our heat, as we electrify uh, our transportation, all things being equal, we'd actually have to increase generation capacity and we'd have to reinforce the grid to carry that additional power. Well, if you can use smart tech to balance that supply and demand, you're not having to build those overhead lines and reinforce them in the way that you otherwise would. That saves people money directly on their bills. So there's different ways of saving the cash for the average household. Yeah, absolutely. So what are we going to hear about today, we're hoping? Well, I think what what we need to really start talking about is what do we mean by this data? Where's this data coming from? You know, we've been saying, oh, you know, smart meters, smart homes, smart cities, smart grids, but what is it that's making it smart? Is it the data? Where's that data coming from? Who Who's generating it? Who owns it? Who's got access to it? Who's using it? And then I think even more than that, how are we starting to use that data to deliver a better future? Because it isn't, as we've said, it's not just about cost minimization. We also want to maximize local renewables. And there might be other benefits that we want to bring, you know? So maybe, maybe in my home, I don't get it that much cheaper, but money can somehow flow back into the community or to deliver community level benefits. So I think there's a lot of questions here about that. Yes, smart and community is exciting. Well, we've got an exciting episode lined up. We should invite them in and hear a little bit more. Hi, I'm Stephen MacArthur and I'm Professor of Intelligent Energy Systems at the University of Strathclyde. Hello, I'm Gavin Starks. I'm the founder and chief exec of Icebreaker One. Gavin, tell us, what does Icebreaker 1 do? We set up Icebreaker 1 to help bridge some of the data gaps between finance and climate change. And so we're trying to make data work harder to help deliver net zero. The way we're going about that is working across the energy sector. We have a program called Open Energy, uh, which is trying to make it much easier to share information between organisations right the way through to government by making the rules of sharing easier Uh, as well as some of the technology pieces. Brilliant. So thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. And uh, we've had a little bit of a chat um, before before you've come on the show. And I think really what I can say is that Matt Fraser and I know very little about the smart side of smart local energy. And in the pod so far, we've talked a lot about local energy, community energy, how this can help households, communities and so on. But I guess alongside this, we're hearing a lot more about smart or intelligent energy systems. And, you know, I think for most people you think, okay, I might might have a smart meter, but I don't really know what that does. And, you know, maybe I've heard of smart cities, but probably most people haven't. So clearly there's there's something going on, but a lot of people aren't familiar with this. So I'm wondering maybe could you just, perhaps Gavin, could you kick us off by just telling us about what you mean by data working harder and what would, what is this data we're talking about and what is this smart like why is this such an important and timely topic that, that's a great question and i think at the heart of this there's a real shift in the way that we both produce and consume energy it used to be the case we had a small relatively small number of power stations supplying the country and they all fed into the national grid we're now in a situation where there are tens of thousands and there will be millions of assets producing energy And we're also electrifying all of our transport as part of our net zero uh, targets. So there'll be millions more assets at the other end on the supply side, and they're going to be moving around. They're all going to have batteries in them. So part of our energy storage is going to be mobile. And so you end up with a situation where there are millions of things acting on the supply side and millions of things acting on the demand side. And they're all 
decentralized and distributed. So that presents major challenges for everybody who's trying to operate in that ecosystem. We've mapped out over 9,000 companies in the energy sector in the UK, and they all need access to information to make different kinds of decisions at different points. But also the systems themselves have to migrate from a load balancing uh, framework that balances out every 30 minutes or so using a lot of systems that were developed a long time ago. And, and we need to move now to a, a situation where the systems can self-heal and self-balance. So there's too many of them for, for much human intervention. So we, we, mean, we need to help the machines help us to manage the whole network. And that requires digitizing everything. Gavin, can I just say to you, one of the analogies I use, and I'm not sure whether you would agree with this and thinking about Becky's discussion around what's smart as well. So that was very eloquent in terms of the challenge and the size of the problem and what we're trying to do. But a lot of people have probably heard and read a lot about what we're trying to do with autonomous self-driving vehicles, for example, which is a really complex system of trying to maintain the correct speed, avoid objects in the road, avoid traffic, taking signals from cameras, taking signals from road conditions, taking other signals coming in about what's happening around the roads. And I always think of these future intelligent energy systems that need SMART as being an equally complex system of running energy, where we need to work out what energy to use in the home and when, how that interacts with the energy networks that moves the wholesale energy around and how that interacts with the uh, energy suppliers and the generators. So, so for me, the analogy for people is it's a bit like the complexity of a self-driving car brought into the energy space so you don't have to think about it. And that's why we need SMART, because the system you described at the beginning we used to have was difficult and complex, but humans could get in the middle and help make decisions. But with the millions of interactions you're talking about, we just can't do that in terms of manual control. So we need SMART. So on that basis, and I think you both very eloquently outline what SMART is and in a broad sense why it's important. But you know, the listeners of this pod, net zero is very much at the forefront of their minds. How does SMART help us get there? Great. Well, one of the things we're doing in the development of open energy is anchoring everybody around a core use case. And the use case we picked there is a, a local authority trying to work out how to understand the impact of low carbon technologies when they're either retrofitting buildings or looking at how they're going to deploy EV in their area and so on. And in order to do that, they need access to a lot of information. They need to know the data from smart meters in apartment blocks. They need to know the capacity, what's already all out there in terms of solar panels, heat pumps, wind turbines, and so on. They need to know what the demand's going to be today, tomorrow, and a bit further away for public EV charging points and, and the performance of that. You, you don't want a whole street worth of cars turning up and plugging in and then overloading the system. So then you need to know, you know, what's the, the capacity at the substation? What's the headroom? Right the way through to the um, national grids and the transmission constraints. I mean, it's already a, a complex system, but it's just going to get more complicated. And when, when we bring this back down to kind of the ground, as it were, when someone's sitting there, how on earth do we make a decision about what we invest in over the next six months, 12 months, five years, 10 years to drive to net zero? And there's an opportunity in here to enable all this data to flow with the minimum of hassle, um, which um, 
we don't have yet. And that's really the thing that we're focused on. So what I'm hearing is, you know, and I, I love the autonomous vehicle example, but it also made me think of an article that I read last week or the week before about somebody that was, um, and I know we don't have fully autonomous cars at the moment, but where, you know, they'd sort of completely switched off, gone into the passenger seat or something and the car crashed. And so, you know, it makes me worry sometimes when we think about it, just the machines are doing something. So I love this use case thinking about, okay, part of the data is to help this more autonomous operation to stuff that's happening in a faster time frame than perhaps it's appropriate to ask people to make judgments and, and do more manual control. But then at the same time, it's about using that data to help people make better decisions. So there's something here. There's, so we're clearly talking about different types of data. So, you know, who do you see using this data? Is it is it a combination of all people, different sorts of people in organizations? Is it the machines themselves? You know, what's this balance? So for me, I think it's all of those people. Um, when, when Matt asked the first question, he asked about how does this help local zero? And if we think about it as a as a as a user just sitting in our household of energy, we've got all this complexity. But I'm sure Matt, Becky, Fraser, you you don't want to be constantly checking a display or a system to decide when do you charge your car, when do you charge your, your battery in your house, when do you use your energy. So so there is that support side of things where it where it's nudging, advising, or taking some of those decisions for you, but also advising you on how you could use your energy. More so, I think there's the element of us as, as consumers and end users of energy getting advised from it. But as Gavin outlined, then you might move into more uh, automated control within the networks. We, all, we already do it with things, something called active network management, which means that we can control the amount of renewable energy going on to a network to make sure we don't go over the, um, the limits of that network. We don't damage the equipment so we can dynamically control when and the amount of output that comes from the from the generator. So, so we've already got elements of that automatic control in, helping the network become uh, closer to, to net zero. And I think we'll have a whole continuum of users across that. Stephen, could we do net zero without smart? That's a very big question. Um, I think in some of the studies I've seen, the one, one element of the answer is around how much you would have to invest in equipment to make sure you've got the headroom for, let's assume we're moving, we're obviously electrifying transport, we're moving towards electrifying heat. I know that I know there'll be hydrogen coming in alongside that, but, but one way or the other, there's going to be significantly greater load on the electricity network. And the usual way to, to build headroom, as I call it, to make sure that we can handle that is to invest in copper, to put more metal and equipment in and be very expensive and to, to disrupt streets and to disrupt the environment by building more infrastructure. Smart is a way of making sure that we take into account the flexibility you can get from when things are generated and if you can store it to make sure you don't have to invest in the network. So, so you probably could build a physical infrastructure without smart that could help you get to net zero, but it would be expensive, it would have an impact in the environment. And, and, and arguably quicker because you're not actually having to, to make these interventions in the infrastructure. Yes. My, my view on that is categorically, no, we will not hit our targets if we don't in, embrace this. I think we were looking at, even if we didn't have climate as a driver, uh, the complexity of the system's growing exponentially. And so we have to enable 
the digitization of uh, and the digitalization of our networks. It's just a mandatory process. When we look at it through the lens of climate, it, it reinforces that. But you may be able to uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if we were to simply electrify all our vehicles today, I believe we'd need multiples of our current generation capacity to deliver it. So if we're going to, you know, I'm assuming that we don't want to go out and build a lot more supply, right? We're going to have to build some more supply. But the when we're trying to think about how can we more, be more efficient and how can we manage our costs better, we have to be looking at the efficiency gains from a smarter network as a significant and material contributor to our net zero targets. You know, if, if we were to just, like say, switch it over, we just end up building a lot more infrastructure, which we shouldn't have to build. And that comes with its own costs in terms of money and its own costs in terms of carbon. So we just can't do that, in my view. Uh, so the, the, the big challenge there is how do we de-risk all of this? Uh, and risk is a huge component, obviously, of, of maintaining reliable supply and managing demand at the other end of that. Yeah. So, so what sort of data are we talking about? So we've talked a little bit, I, th I think I heard you mention smart meters from apartment blocks. We've talked about data on the, on our networks. I mean, what, what is the data we're talking about? Is that it? Are there more types of data? It's hard to know where to, to draw a line under uh, the amount of data that could be coming into it because, um, so there's data around uh, smart meters and how people are using their energy. There, there's data already been gathered and will increasingly be gathered on our energy networks about how they're operating and how the equipment's operating that, that we want to get efficiencies out of, out of generation side of things. But also the type of data we'll use in the energy system going forward you know, includes weather feeds that allows you to, to more, more accurately predict um, what your generation might be, or, or actually in some instances, companies are using weather feeds to predict where they might see faults and there might be security or problems with, with supply uh, because of faults in the network. So, And then you get to uh, research and consideration around things like can we use social media feeds to give us early alerts about events or, or things that might be either a fault that might give, tell us there's something going wrong in the network or tell us that there's going to be a pickup and load. And then, as Gavin talked about, you've got these movable loads and batteries in terms of electric vehicles moving around. So you want some of that data about location and travel to try and help predict where you're going to be having to uh, charge vehicles or where you're going to have increased loads. So I don't think there's an end to the type of data that we might be thinking about and there'll be areas that we haven't even seen emerge yet. But we've got a lot of this data already. So we've had smart meters for years. Um, you know, if you're applying for, uh, if you only get an electric vehicle, you have to register it. Um, if you want to put solar on your roof, you've got to, again, get approval. So a lot of these data fees are already there. We've been forecasting for generations, you know. So what, what are some of the biggest challenges? Why aren't we doing this already? Well, I think we've got a, a lot of legacy systems. Uh, and it's not to say, I mean, there's a huge amount of work being done I think we've got to acknowledge that it just takes a lot of time to get these things to work in the first place. And then uh, I suppose the, the key thing we're working on now is how do we enable them to be linked to each other? And that includes everything, I mean, to go back to your, your question, everything from hydro energy storage to uh, large scale hydrogen production and connections with Europe around gas and electricity, it's not just about electricity. It could be geothermal, could be combined heat and power, uh, industrial heat pumps, biogas, there's a whole range of, um, a whole suite of things in our energy production and consumption across the country. 
because it's such energy is at the core of uh, the climate issue, the scope one and scope two elements of, of carbon reporting are pretty much uh, dominated by energy uh, consumption production. But that then links us out into other areas of policy. And that links out into the investment community and the potential liabilities that people are facing. The asset managers, the investment community are going to require information about climate risk. So there's going to be new demands on energy provision. Being able to build more adaptive systems, there's thousands of use cases here and there are millions of data points flowing around. So there's data there, but it's it's either not accessible or not accessible in the timeframes that we need it, or data from, you know, one system, like the weather system, can't be, you know, taken in alongside data from a different system and used together. Is it, would you say that are some of the biggest challenges? I think, again, it's, it's not that the data in some, many cases doesn't exist. It's just not, it's just hard to plug it all together. And one of the programs we're working on at the moment that Bayes is funding is called the Energy Data Visibility Project. And that's anchored around search and discoverability. Do we even know what information is out there? Uh, and there's a, a, another a UK national program through UKRI called MEDA, uh, which we're also developing. It's modernizing energy data access. And that keyword is access. The first point of call for us is could everybody publish metadata, the, the, the descriptions of the data that they hold in an open format so that people can find it in the first place. And, and no, that's not a solved problem. Technically it's solved, but Operationally, it's not solved. And Stephen, you, you're obviously working on something that requires data at a much kind of faster frequency. You know, you were saying that you were talking about these systems that need to run themselves because decisions are happening too fast for people to kind of get in the loop there. So is that does that bring an additional layer of challenge? So I think some of it's the same challenge that, that Gavin's spoken about. So it's about legacy systems in some instances that you're trying, you're trying to bring data in from different manufacturers, different systems that have been built in the past. And you're trying to do it in a way that allows um, all that data to be used and some type of decisions making to be made and then some type of control to be sent back to tell the device to charge or the, or the device to, to generate less electricity or or whatever the decision is so so the challenge comes around how do you make sure you can bring that together understand what the data means so one of the, the challenges is interoperability in terms of being able to take data from one system put it into another one analyze it know what it means and get the benefit from it and the information from it so so one of the big challenges is with legacy systems and new data sources is is plugging that all together now there are technologies that are lots of work going on in that area but without the type of uh, approach that Gavin was describing you still end up with some siloed data because although you can access it you don't know, necessarily know what it means. To build on that as well it's, it's partly it's a, a tech issue of like how do you plug the systems together with the same plugs and sockets for data. The great thing there is we've got loads of blueprints on how to do that it's called the web right we, we do that at scale on the web every minute. The harder piece of this from my perspective is everything not to do with technology, everything to do with intellectual property, to do with liability transfer. And that's where we need to bring in the governance frameworks that can align with our um, political objectives and our policy requirements and help everybody move forward in this quickly and not have to negotiate, oh, can I use that data for that purpose every single time that we have a, a question we need to ask. But we need to be able to 
give confidence to the commercial sector that it's okay to share data within a trusted network of people who've all agreed to the same terms and conditions. So I, th- I think you're probably starting to stray into the, the area that I was going to ask next, which is around the ethics and the, around the privacy of data and the ownership of data. So I'm going to um, simplify things terribly here, and you probably get a little <laughs> rightly annoyed if I do so. But if we go back a few years and, and the stories of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica blew up and people were starting to become a little bit clearer about how big tech companies were using their data, Analogies could potentially be drawn with a smarter energy system. And I wanted to ask two questions in relation to this. Do you think most consumers will be comfortable with their data being used in the ways that you've just outlined? And the second related question is, even if they weren't, have they got a direct say over this? Or are they essentially powerless as things move forward? Well, well, let me come on, on, on that to begin with. I think, first of all, let's be very clear that we're, there are two quite distinct categories of, of information here. One is data that is directly linked to consumers. And the other category is indus- what I'll call industry data. You know, the engineering performance of wind turbine is intellectual property of the company that runs it. Your home energy consumption is actually your personal data. And here, that there's we've got a, a, an outline of that, which is, GDPR applies to any use of personal data or any aggregate data through which it's possible to identify a living person. But the confidence piece that I can bring to this this conversation is we addressed exactly this challenge in banking already. There's a standard called the Open Banking Standard, and really it's a business-to-business set of rules that protect consumers. It's not really a consumer standard, so to speak. But what it does is it mandates, and it's regulated, Uh, through the Financial Conduct Authority. Firstly, that companies have to share the personal data of the individuals. In that case, it's their bank statements, not their energy statements. But the data is owned by the customer, not by the bank. The thing that then is built on top of that is an explicitly regulated consent process where as an individual, I have to say, yes, I want to share my data with this third party and an explicit mode of redress, liability transfer, and all these other, again, non-technical things where people can be held to account at scale. And so for me, the Open Banking Standards has helped to codify some of the potential um, chaos that we've seen with the likes of Cambridge Analytica. And we think strongly that those principles can be applied to energy, personal energy data in the mix here. And I think the, the guidance here I give to everyone is when thinking about personal data, it's very easy to find a what-if scenario that blows everything up. Much more useful from my perspective is to pick individual use cases and walk through them and say, what are the potential benefits? What are the potential harms? How do we mitigate against them? Because yeah, uh, of course, it's a trade-off, right? There's, there's, yeah. And Stephen, any view on this? It's a trade-off, yes. So Gav, Gavin's expert in this area. I tend to, the area he defined as engineering or industrial data it is mostly the area I operate in. So, so we're often thinking about that more technical second-by-second data that's owned by the, the companies where, where it starts to interact with what Gavin was talking about is around about the IP part, mm. where there needs to be agreement to for interoperability, i.e. the ability to take data out of one 
system owned by by one uh, manufacturer or one energy producer or, or energy network and, and put it into another. So, so again, it comes down to open data standards agreements and and uh, the understanding of why that's being shared. I love the way Gavin you framed it around the idea of like cost versus benefits, and I think we need to think about that for these different types of consumers. And so. You know, for an industrial, um, for industrial partner, like what are the benefits they're getting out? Like we talked about potential benefits earlier around meeting net zero and this idea of using data versus putting a lot more copper in the ground. And I guess you can think about that as broader national level benefits, system level benefits. But for industry to engage, for those industrial partners to engage, like what are the benefits that they will get out of the system? Why might they want to do that? Have you have you had any interaction with industry partners, Stephen? And are you seeing them talking about this um, as something that's of interest? Yeah, absolutely. And it, de- it depends on which industry partner you're, you're talking about, why they're interested in it. So if you think about the electricity network operators, the complexity of what they're, they're trying to operate and manage going forward, uh, there's this drive to move towards something called distribution system operator, which means that at the distribution level, so closer to our homes and towns, the companies that run the electricity networks there need to be able to balance the the generation coming onto the network at that level, the charging of batteries, the management of all their equipment so that it's within within limits. Um, as, as Gavin outlined as well earlier, that they, they see digitalization data and smart is the way of doing that to, to manage that that complexity. So they're interested in it because that delivers value to us as end consumers. Then you have other industry clustered around that. So you've got manufacturers of technology, software, analytics. They see great opportunity for new products, new services that can then be layered on top of the of the energy networks. And that those could be facing out to the to the industrial companies or the energy networks. So it could be helping them manage equipment and doing maintenance more effectively to keep costs down, or it might be making sure they don't need to put more copper and metal in the ground and use smart and flexibility to avoid that. Or they might be trying to sell services to us as consumers, aggregating energy, allowing us to, to share the battery in our home, etc. So, so there are a lot of opportunities people see for efficiency, cost savings, optimization, and new products in the, in the industry space I've been working in. The benefits for industry are, are super clear to me. Efficiency, like radical efficiency. We've got to see double-digit percentage improvements in the efficiency of our systems. That's mandatory if we're going to hit net zero. And then secondly, around that managing risk, as these systems get increasingly more uh, complex, if they're not interoperability, you're introducing risk into the system. Uh, and so the, the, from a, a governance perspective, if I was involved in the energy sector, I'd be really looking at this through the, the lens of uh, risk and efficiency, because uh, they're the, the big drivers. On, on the consumer uh, side, data at the metering points and, and behind the meter is considered personal data. So it's owned by the customer. We've got to be very careful as we step forward here because what we've seen and what we know from direct experience of, of the, the GAFA crew and, and so on is that if they can track something, they'll track it. Uh, and when you start placing that into devices in, in the home, there's some new threat vectors there. And I don't mean threat, well, there's some threat vectors from a hacking point of view in the mix here, but I don't want to dwell on that for this podcast. Uh, but there's some threat vectors for us as individuals and our own privacy and our own um, ability to have agency over that. I'd say most 
consumers from my experience of, of smart meters, they kind of look at them for a couple of weeks because, oh, it's novel, it's interesting, and then they close the cupboard door and never look at it again, right? So smart needs to mean, from my perspective, that the efficiency gains from in-home load balancing, for example, if you've got a battery in every home and you want to switch the kettle on, that some, like the fridge switches off for a minute, you know, those kind of things need to be completely invisible to the user, but the user has to be protected. So there's an absolute need here for policy to have a strong steer that we don't end up with cookies being set on a fridge, for example, and smart appliances, because that way madness lies. We will uh, not serve our society well if we, in the kind of rush to unlock innovation, which we have to do, that we don't accidentally open up uh, new ways for people to engage in exploiting individuals and communities based on their behavioural analysis. Sorry, and you're going to have to tell us what cookies have to do with all of this. Not the edible kind in a fridge, either. Well, I mean, cookies are the, the, at, the heart of, uh, at the heart of how we are tracked online. So if you end up putting every device in your home online, then the utilisation of those devices becomes trackable. And if you start marrying that up with your mobile data and so on, you'll be able to have a very clear view of what individual I'm doing as an individual. How often did Gavin boil the kettle this week will be a, a knowable uh, thing just from the smart meter data itself. I dread to think if my husband could see how many times I run the coffee machine. <laughs> well, I think there's, there's lots of material things there that we need a, a public and informed conversation around. And there are lots of ways of getting insight from all of this amazing kind of new inf uh, information flow that's going to exist without undermining privacy in the mix. And I think if we don't manage that well, then we'll see huge consumer pushback. And we've got plenty of examples to look at there, not just the, the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, but you could look at care.data uh, around our health information, which was a, a huge uh, disaster uh, in the way that the communications around that was managed and some of the material things underneath it. So we, I think we've got to step forward with caution and move forward at pace. So how those two things fit together is a, is a good question. And are you worried about some people getting left behind here? Because, you know, everything that you've talked about, I mean, I'm just about wrapping my head around. When you first said cookies, I was genuinely thinking about the edible kind. Um, <laughs> I think it was using it in the same um, sentence as the word fridge. <laughs> but, you know, do you think there's the potential that some people get really, you know, could be left behind or penalised in this? I think if we don't manage the process here, and really this is where it's not so much a technology problem as a regulatory and, and principles and practice challenge, I think we've got plenty of prior art to move forward here that we can build upon. And I think it's beholden on all of us who are working in this sector to take a really measured view of what do we need to do and when and how do we sequence that in order that we minimise the potential harms and maximise the benefits. At one level, that is the function of policy and government to make sure that nobody is left behind. Equally, I think there's a huge component of this of, that, that actually links with some of the political agendas to, to help bring better energy equity to the country and help pipe innovation and pipe finance to the people who are, are struggling. Um, you know, if you insulate a home, you improve its energy efficiency, you reduce the bills to the individual within the home, you also improve their well-being, so they're less likely to get ill, which means they're more employable, and so they can get a job. You know, the, there's a whole sequence of systems thinking that we can bring to this that 
the data here can help with. Yeah, and, and taking the part of your question, Becky, um, you, you talked about how the technical language becomes confusing very quickly and, and people feel left behind. And and there, there's a lot of activity in this digitalization area going on in energy, and there's a lot of complex data concepts being, being discussed. But I always think that it just needs to be in the background and we need to make sure that we do the technical work, we take onto account all the caveats and the challenges around privacy that, that Gavin outlined and, and the policy. But, but for me, it needs to get to the point where, and I know there's still some complexity in this, but when you get a smartphone and you want to load apps onto it and you want to get new functionality, there, there's a very complex ecosystem of technology going on in the background there. But the average user of the smartphone is not aware of it and, and only needs to understand a few of the concepts to really extract the value from it. And that's really, I guess, what we're trying to do with digitalization of energy is to get to the same point where people can access the services and value that they really want, but they don't need to be experts on how to build data interoperability and pipelines to get the value in their home. So finally, the podcast is all about local action to deliver net zero, what we can do on our doorstep. And that may be as an individual, maybe as a household, but also might be as a neighborhood, as a community, or in conjunction with other local stakeholders like local authorities or SMEs. So in that vein, if folk want to get smarter and do energy in a smarter way and to be part of this smart revolution, what what can they start to do? And how important is the local element of this? Now, Stephen, I'm going to go to you first because you head up Energy Rev, which Becky and I are part of. This is all about smart local energy systems. So you've been in this, leading this for a couple of years now. What are your thoughts? And then we'll come to Gavin. My immediate thought was around the, the smart and the data side is um, I'm not sure there's immediate opportunities for, for us as, as end users because there's a lot of technical infrastructural open data requirements to, to bring data sets together. I think it's for local communities and local energy systems to work closely with with people like Gavin and I and people working in this area to come up with the high-value use cases that they're trying to unlock. I think it's more of a, a closer interaction between technologists and those on the data journey within energy that are trying to deliver the vision with the local communities to make sure we join up our aspirations and the use cases and the value we want to get rather than there is something that people could run out and do. So almost like exemplar cases of where value has been created. Look, look at this, guys. This is fantastic. Yeah. How about we do this, you know, 10, 100 fold? Yeah. There's some design patterns in here that we can learn from the way that digitalization broadly has completely transformed other sectors. And part of what has ha happened is that we redemocratize the ability to engage at a micro level. Now, if we can engage on a micro level and enable people to engage on a micro level, building their own local power grids and, and so on, that are interoperable and fit with large scale industrial uh, national infrastructure, then we could unlock innovation at the local and regional level. And people like Cambridge, uh, Cambridgeshire Climate Emergency have been building some of the, the tools there where you can take the, the area and you can drag and drop um, some wind turbines onto your area and look at the impact and look at the payback curve and so on. So I think there's a real opportunity here to engage at scale. And if we look at the web and copy the, some of the principles of the web here, uh, the good ones, that is, and say, if we've got a common way of joining things together, 
we can enable many people to act. And if we make it easier and easier to plug things together, and the data can tell us whether or not the thing plugged in is fit for purpose, then we can start to break open more avenues for local action and more avenues for innovation. So smart tech could unleash community action by creating new opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have been available. We've seen it in every other sector. In some ways, you could say banking was 20 years behind the curve of the web mm. uh, before they got to open banking. And now there's hundreds of fintech companies who can access and interoperate with the entire banking system of the UK. Uh, so let's do the same thing for energy. Yeah, and Matt, just finishing off, just going back to the start of your question about the energy rev, which is part of prospering from the energy revolution. I think what Gavin's just described there is, as you know, in prospering from the energy revolution, there's a number of demonstrators. So the type of thing that people could do to help what Gavin's described and what I've described is if there's demonstration or enthusiasm in an area for some local energy system to 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 enhance and to to push on energy in that area and to get involved, because that will give us the use cases that will give us the exemplars Gavin was talking about, and that will start to unlock this journey uh, more quickly. Absolutely. No, that's that's a really good plug. And of course, we didn't say this at the beginning, we're launching a new website shortly, which we will be curating information for uh, and linking to the pods. And we'll be sure to, to link to that scheme that you mentioned and the, the various demonstrators, but also Gavin, the work that you're doing with, with Ivy One. So thank you very much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can you both stay on and join us for Future or Fiction? Sure. Sure. Brilliant. Well, Fraser, over to you. Yeah, the part of the show that everyone actually tunes in for. <laughs> uh, so for the for the uninitiated and for our guests, Future or Fiction is a game that we play at the end of every show where I present you with a brand new technological innovation. You have to decide if it's real, i.e. it's the future, or if you think I've just pulled out my backside. So... This episode, the invention is called Sun in the Hand. That's Sun in the Hand. So the things that we can do with prosthetics these days really are incredible. But how about this? Scientists have devised a smart prosthetic arm which looks very realistic but is in fact powered by tiny solar panels. These panels generate power for tiny sensors that can detect the size, shape, proximity of objects and pick them up or grip them with minimal to no input from the user. Do we think that a solar-powered prosthetic is the future, or do we think I've just made it up? So you're going to have to give us a little bit more information here, Fraser. <laughs> lots, so lots of mini solar panels. Teeny, tiny, wee, yeah. Built into... Built into a, a prosthetic arm. And they're used to generate energy in order to power sensors yes right so how some prosthetics of course you know uh, uh, do not motion at all they can be very simple but mm -hmm. the, the much more complex ones how are these powered at the moment are these uh, you know have we got some power pack attached to them or are they actually some of them i guess are powered through the body that are linked into the you know the, the sort of muscular and uh, how, how how do they work them <laughs> fraser <laughs> Most of them. Now, what I, what I want to be clear on, Matt, and what I think shines through in every episode... Is my lack of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say my lack of knowledge. So wh whether I've invented this or whether it's real, 
I don't know enough about it in general. What I do know about this is that typically the the the, the more advanced ones now are powered by batteries. Right. As of now. What what do the guests think? Stephen Gavin, what do you guys think? Well, my, my question, my inner engineer immediately comes out and says, what's the surface area of the prosthetic? And what's the uh, how much of that is solar panel? How much voltage you uh, get from that? And then where's the battery? You're not going to get that out of me, Gavin. I suspect not. <laughs> uh, I, I have to say my, my gut reaction here is, is uh, making it up because you could just strap a solar panel to the to your back uh, backpack uh, and put it on a battery like a solar ninja turtle <laughs> why does it need to be embedded in the prosthetic and then you put a jumper on and it's uh it's not mm. exposed to the sun yeah. well the sun goes down it's the evening and all of a sudden you can't pick up your beer yeah you're out partying you can't dr- you can't drink your beer anymore you uh, just can't you can't yeah. pick up i, I can imagine as focus grouping this and on a whiteboard somebody writing in one column jumper <laughs> with this with a sad face <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or or you live in Glasgow. Yes. <laughs> and it's yeah. of not much use to you. So so I um I was going to put my practical engineering skills around and said, what happens if you've got long sleeve short, etc.? But somebody's beat me to that. However, and I don't want to be disparaging to my community, but I've been long enough in the academic community to to suggest that I have seen similar ideas around other. Uh, devices where people would experiment and try it. So I could see that being a research project out of somewhere. So I'm going to go for future, but notwithstanding all the all the feelings that we highlighted. Yeah, future, but probably not in Glasgow. <laughs> Let's just paraphrase what you've said, though, which is that um, academic engineers don't think about real-world applications. <laughs> no, I, I, I should have maybe thought about that a bit more. That wasn't quite what I was going to say, but, but you didn't give us a full abstract, and they may have covered all of these issues, and it might have been for a specific use case, so I'm trying to rescue my, I'm trying to rescue my community now. <laughs> well, the, 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 I'll give you a bit, bit, bit of help there, Stephen. There is a an example I came across, I think it was DARPA who was extracting energy from blood flow in soldiers as they were on the field to maximize uh, all energy because they've got so many devices they're carrying with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that kind of power yeah. harvesting seemed extremely, I'd say, at the edge. Exactly. That yeah. sounds way more exciting than than the thing that I pitched. Now you have to tell whether or not I made that up. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Fraser, you, you, your chub's in doubt here. Yeah. And the more we, we do this game, the more we realise is actually there's quite a fine line between fiction and future that actually some things, you know, have, have existed to a lesser extent, either on paper or in a lab somewhere, but haven't quite made out the the shadows yeah well i just i just think back to our first episode where yeah where you and i matt were so convinced that what fraser proposed was fiction and i was actually on um on a webinar earlier this week where the chief scientific advisor for bays was talking about it as the future so <laughs> yeah. and what fraser is doing is if he manages to divert us and and gives us fiction that we believe he then runs out and patents it. that's exactly right <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> This is all protected. There's, um, I've, I've got, I'm getting royalties from Bayes for space-based solar panels as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, right. So we're going to have to have scores on the doors. Yes. So, Gavin. Future or fiction? Uh, complete fiction. Stephen? I went for future. Becky? I'm going fiction on this one. Um, I'm fiction as well, I think. I, I can't get the, that jumper out of my head. So, fiction. As we do every time Matt gives an answer, Becky, do you now want to change your answer? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Um, well, I didn't last week, and it it paid off. So I think I'll uh, I'll, I'll carry on. Still, there was still a pregnant pause there. If I might, Jake. <laughs> so that's that's three fictions and a future from Stephen. Okay, the answer is. It's the future. <laughs> That's right. Sun in the hand is the future. Researchers at Glasgow University, of all places in the world, Glasgow, sorry, Gavin, Glasgow's second best university. I'm going to have to have words. Have devised a prosthetic arm powered by solar panels that work through polymer resembling the color of skin. Rather than typical sensors, this prosthetic uses light and shadow cast by an object to judge proximity shape and size. Lighter than the typical sensor-based battery power prosthetics, the arm actually uses the light into the solar PV units as part of its analysis. So the, the solar PV itself is to power it, but also part of the, the sensory unit as well. Excellent. So there we go. I don't I, I don't know where the jumpers come into it. I don't know how far along they are. This was from last year, so it's still early stages. But yes, future. Now, Fraser, we've, we've got one thing to say. We, we had uh, a... Listener writing, who actually also is a colleague of ours. I won't name them, uh, but it was uh, somebody questioning whether something was future or fiction from an earlier episode. It was the user-powered gyms. They have fact-checked this, and they have contested the fact that I think you called it fiction, and that there is actually a gym out there uh, run, I think, by the Great Outdoor Gym Company, which is powered by people. So we're going to need to look into that. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, th- I think it's right. I've I've seen the links. That particular episode of Future or Fiction was literally me walking out of the gym, thinking, "Oh no, I haven't done a Future or Fiction for today." It's a big world out there, Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it's taken so long for a correction. But but yeah, I said I wouldn't name them. But thanks, Jeff, for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. You've been listening to Local Zero. Remember to check us out on social media. We are at Local Zero Pod. Yes, that's a new handle. Find us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod. You can also follow along at EnergyRev underscore UK. Um, And remember to tag us if you do use that with hashtag Local Zero. But for now, I think all that's left for me to say is thank you, Gavin, and thank you, Stephen, for such a great discussion and more importantly, such a great contribution to Future or Fiction. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. See ya. Thank you. Bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.